If you've been with us the last uh, few weeks, you know that we've been walking through the concept of renewal. And uh, last week, Thomas led us on that uh, first of a series of sermons on renewal. And this morning, we're going to continue doing that. Um, And what is the goal of the sermon series on renewal but to help us as a church, as a people devoted to God, uh, as individuals who have uh, suffered through a very difficult, difficult year, to kind of start over, to look at it as like, okay, everything that we have known has been changed in some way, Uh, in some way some things have been eradicated, and yet here we are. And we want to be renewed. We want to do things that will please the Lord and perhaps do them in a way that is great and different. To that end, we're creating opportunities for renewal at the church. You know, you just heard Beth talk about the prayer times. I can't but encourage you enough that uh, you participate in that, that they're just on Zoom if you'd like to do that. What a great time of prayer. And they're all through the week. Uh, your schedule can usually find one of those times. Uh, join us. It's really a great time. Um, but we know that renewal doesn't just happen because we're attending church or you're listening at home. Uh, you cannot be passive and be renewed. It takes both feet in. And our encouragement for us as a church is that all of us would be excited about this renewal and that we would jump in together, husbands and wives working together, parents leading children, all of us encouraging one another to be renewed. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is writing about his concern for a group of people that he dearly loves. And I'm just going to quickly read that for us. We're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, and I'm going to read down through verse 10. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more." For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul's writing this letter to these Corinthians, and he's, he's had them on his heart. If you remember back to our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, which we're going to pick up again once we're done with our renewal series, but we've been talking about the background of the church at Corinth, this capital city of Acacia, And Paul founded that church in this city with the hopes that it would blossom, that it would grow, and that it would be a strategically placed church that would cause other communities around Corinth or throughout Corinth to also have churches, and um, it would be time well invested. 
but it seemed like almost from the start, those hopes were dashed. That didn't seem to happen. The people of Corinth uh, exhibited uh, some problems that Paul didn't quite anticipate. Uh, we talked about how we have uh, two of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Uh, in our New Testament, they're called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But there's also some other letters he wrote, and Paul is referencing one of those letters in our passage this morning. And I'm going to quickly turn and read that. One of the important letters that we, we know for sure that he wrote is referenced as the sorrowful or tearful letter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we refer to that letter, which is now missing, as the sorrowful letter. Paul's going to reference that through here. And basically, our passage today is focused on the fact that this letter caused such pain in the hearts of the Corinthians when it was read to them or when they read it. From these efforts by Paul to correct the Corinthians, see, in that sorrowful letter, he's getting on their case. Uh, there's no doubt that Paul is saying to them, I've heard these rumors about you. Uh, stories are coming to me that speak of the fact that you're not staying faithful to your calling. Uh, and so I am going to take you to task. I'm going to be very strong with you and tell you exactly how you need to get back on task. And it caused them to feel some emotional pain. Um, Paul felt this was his job. He was not trying to wound them. He just felt like as the guy who founded the church, this was his place to be, his words to speak. Uh, Paul was not one of those guys who might say, hey, you know what? God called me to this area. I planted the church. I was faithful. I did what I was called to do. But now that's someone else's heartache. Now, I think, in fact, no matter where Paul was, the Corinthian church was in his heart. It was in the back of his mind. What are they doing? Why aren't they doing what I told them to do? It grieved and worried him, <clears throat> as only the founder of a ministry can be grieved and worried. By the time we catch up with this passage, we find Paul explaining his reason for using strong words and somewhat condemning language in his sorrowful letter that we don't have. As we read these verses, you very much get the impression that you've broken in on someone's phone call or you're standing outside the door of a room in which a parent is berating a child, and it's somewhat uncomfortable. You don't really want to be there. Uh, you feel like you're eavesdropping. You're hearing the scolding going on. And when Paul, I think well, this may be one of the reasons why God didn't let that sorrowful letter become like the one point A, you know, first Corinthian epistle or first third Corinthians or something like that. It's because it was a private letter between Paul and his people. Um, it makes us uncomfortable when we think about that, right? Well, let's take a look at this. Paul is sort of apologizing for the pain of his sorrowful letter that it may have caused him for those results. Paul realizes that one must be careful when leveling criticism at anyone. It can result in them not uh, just giving up and going the opposite direction that you intended. He takes no pleasure in wounding them. 
All of us have at times been so zealous to see improvement in those that we love that we have gone overboard in the force of our correction. Uh, there was a time when my girls were young and uh, we had stopped at a friend's house in our neighborhood and to pick up my youngest daughter, Bethany, and I was sitting out in front of the house and I had purposely pulled up uh, on the wrong side of the street so that my driver's side was right next to the curb because I wanted Bethany, who was probably seven or eight, to come running out and jump in the passenger door right behind me and thus not going to the street at all. And as she came running out, she was so happy and she was just excited. I don't remember why she was so exuberant on that day. But she just ran around the front of the car to get in the passenger door behind Ion. And at the same time, I could see in the rearview mirror a car coming at too fast a pace. It was a couple of teenagers. And they were just zipping down the road. And I could see it coming, and there was not a thing I could do. And I thought, this is it. Bethany's going to be like a fly on a windshield here in about two seconds. But, praise God, that didn't happen. But I was terrified. I didn't want her ever to do that again. So I went into what I call my grandfather mode. He had this ability. Uh, When she got in the car, I was like, Bethany, what do you think you were doing? She was just like, because she went right from being so happy (coughs) to knowing that she'd come very close. She felt the breeze of that car go right past her. She knew that that wasn't the way that things were supposed to happen. She probably realized that I would never intentionally put her in a place of harm. But instead of thinking that through, I just barked at her. I was so upset. And of course, immediately, you know, when you raise little girls, there's, you know, I want to use that line from that movie, there's no crying in the foster family, but there is, you know. Uh, She just right away, just like, and then of course, now I've got mama bear coming at me. No, seriously, I was, uh, you know, trying to protect her and, you know, well, you were talking way too strong. You don't need it. She understands. So, you know, Paul doesn't want to be in that position. He's not trying to cause them pain. Uh, Yet there are times when correction is necessary, right? If I had to do it again, I would still correct Beth. I just wouldn't do it so strongly. Uh, Paul, it's it's okay with him if some tears flowed here. But um, sometimes strong words serve a purpose, and they help us to get the people that we love back on track. It takes great wisdom, thorough knowledge of the person that you're speaking to in order to do that effectively. It's a fine line that you walk in those situations. But Paul knows what he's doing. There's several things that stand out to me in this passage that tell me that. First of all, Paul is not using a fake apology to act as if he cares. He's not saying, oh, I'm so sorry this hurt you, or one of the fake apologies you can get where someone says, uh, I'm so sorry that what I said to you, uh, you took the wrong way, or I'm so sorry that what I said to you caused you to feel hurt. In other words, there's no ownership of what you had done. It's always on that other person. Well, Paul's not doing that. Paul secondly knew that his letter might cause a strong reaction. Uh, That was his goal. You know, he he wanted them to understand that the behavior they were participating in deserved a strong reprimand. Thirdly, he would certainly do it again. He is disciplining them as only the leader of a people can discipline. 
Uh, Paul was an apostle. It was his role to do this. He just had to make sure he was doing it in the right way, and he did. That sorrowful letter that he wrote produced an incredibly strong, strong reaction. David Garland, in his commentary, reminds us of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 3.21, where he says, For fathers, do not make your children bitter by your words, by your words or behavior. So, trusting that Paul is heeding his own advice, we must understand that Paul is trying to do the best he can there. If we read ahead to verse 11, we see Paul's hope is stated. Uh, and using that strong tone, let me just go ahead and read verse 11. It says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul is saying, this is great. By the fact that you're showing such an emotional response to my chastisement of you in that first letter, uh, it shows me that you're taking this the right way. And so he was pleased with it. Paul rejoices over their repentance, which shows regret over the choices they had made. Now, Paul uses in these verses that we're reading this morning the word grief or sorrow as part of their reaction. In verse 9, we see that they were grieved, right? He defines it as a godly grief. Whatever the issue was that Paul focused on in his sorrowful letter, he now rejoices with them that they had the appropriate response, which was grief. This grief leads them to repent and thus avoid loss. What is the loss? What if they hadn't repented? Well, it must have been a serious issue for Paul. Seems to say that they were in the danger of losing their reward for the next life. Uh, you see that in verse 10. We see this in the same passage in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to go back to that for a second and read there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this. <clears throat> If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone, in verse 15, work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of when you get to the end of your life, what are the works that you have done as a believer that will be able to survive the purifying burning of God's judgment? And Paul is worried that what the Corinthians have been involved in would, in fact, uh, allow them to suffer loss, and he does not want that to happen. Paul's laid the foundation of the church at Corinth, and now the people of that church must be faithful so that at the last judgment, their works will not be burned up when they're tested by fire. Paul seems to be indicating that because the Corinthians felt grieved and they repented from saving them from such a fate. Paul focuses on godly grief, which is different than worldly grief. Uh, when you think about that, you can think about worldly grief, godly grief. Well, worldly grief and godly grief differ in a couple of ways. One is which they differ because of what causes it. Uh, worldly grief, it's caused by a loss of denial of something we want for ourselves. It's totally self-centered. Such things as failing to receive recognition that we believe is due to us, uh, not having as much money as one may want, not being revered 
by others, maybe perhaps family members, it causes worldly grief. We know that it's worldly because it's always focused on us or that other person. Um, Godly grief is different, right? Uh, It's a grief that comes from the Father to produce results for Him. Another thing that makes godly grief different from worldly grief is the fact that it also not only has a different cause, but it has a different result. The selfishness of worldly grief gives rise only to despair, bitterness, and paralysis. It causes us to drown in self-pity. We become so inward-focused on our sorrow that it dominates our lives. We see an example of worldly grief when Judas, who feels so bad that he betrayed Jesus, in his grief, he goes out and he kills himself. Suicide is an example of worldly grief. We don't let God change it. So what is an example of maybe righteous grief? Well, I think that the best example I see in the New Testament is the prodigal son. If you remember that story, he runs off, he burns through his dad's money, uh, he's very demanding and selfish, he's doing everything wrong, but when he gets to the end of his rope, when he realizes the money has run out, he has no friends, uh, there's no really option for him but to return to the Father, he does so how? Penitent, humble, asking his Father's forgiveness. That's what godly grief produces. It's not to be regretted. It motivates us to be repentant, which in and of itself renews us in Christ. The church father, John Chrysotom, says that sorrow is good for nothing but sin. That's worldly sorrow. Sorrow of this kind cannot fix whatever is broken. Sorrow over the loss of money does not restore your money. Sorrow over the loss of a child doesn't bring that child back to life. Sorrow over sickness does not heal the sickness. Sorrow over sin can be godly when it produces in us the desire to repent and to turn to God. I love one writer who says that godly grief leads to repentance causes us to do something about the problem by taking the past tense, that which caused that grief, and it's turned so that God can use it as a future tense so that God turns it into something for his use and his purpose. Every life is filled with sorrow. Every life. None of us are free from it. Even Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that the Lord himself, Jesus himself, had to suffer greatly so that he would be ready for obedience before the Lord. The question is, what are you doing with your sorrow? Is it dominating you? Is it keeping you from taking that next step forward, from being renewed? Or is it a godly grief, a godly sorrow that is causing you to move to repentance? Well, let's look at repentance a little bit closer. Repentance in the New Testament usually describes sinners or unbelievers turning to God. 2 Peter 3.9 says, in that regard... I got this brand new Bible... And the pages still stick together. That's okay. Um, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All of us, even us as believers, should reach repentance. The Corinthians were more likely already Christians. They probably had tried to respond to Paul's offer of the gospel, 
In chapter 12, verse 21, though, he says that Paul was worried about them because not all had repented of the impurity, sexual sins, and debauchery in which they had been indulging. Uh, Paul wanted them all to repent. Well, repentance as a definition implies remorse, right? For sins that wound and anger God. It shows a desire to stop sinning again. Paul is worried that the Corinthians refuse to own up to their sins and it will lead to a hardening of their hearts, a calcifying of their hearts, if you will, and make true repentance all the more difficult. Fridays is usually my day to pray through a, a part of my prayer list that I call my reprobate list. These are people, usually men, that I have known very well that have, for one reason or another, at one time were professing Christians, maybe even pastors, uh, great leaders, um, who have since turned their hearts and they've walked away from God. They're no longer serving him like they once were. Uh, it is without a doubt my most difficult time in prayer as I pray for them. Why is it difficult? For several reasons. One, I, I don't know exactly how to pray for them always. I vacillate between my own zealousness for God and his thinking of myself as saying, you know, God, just bring things about in their life that bring them up short and turn their hearts. And it's a very vigorous prayer and a you know, a prayer that is, is, is not necessarily charitable or loving. But then there are times when I pray for God's mercy and grace in their life. I think of Romans chapter 2 where God, uh, Paul writes, it is because of his kindness that you've repented. And I think in my own life that's more often true than not. I usually do not pray too much on the latter. I focus mostly on the former. I want to pray for them, and I want to see change in their life. Secondly, it's difficult because I care so much for them. When I think of their lives in the time period that I was with them, I saw such gifts and strengths in them only to watch them wasted and abandoned. The cause of Christ was actually harmed by their actions and decisions. But then the Lord reminds me that this person is not the only one who needs to repent, right? He usually is pointing fingers right back at me and says, Dave, you remember when. You still have this issue. I need you to repent. It's not just them, it's you. And so all of us need to move in that direction. But my hope is the people on this list will turn back to God. I am committed. I'm never going to stop praying for them. On my bulletin board in my office, my cork board, there are pictures, mostly of children, the kids of these men. Uh, they suffer from the selfishness of a dad that convinced himself that life was incomplete without that woman or promotion or a drug. I pray that those children will grow up to trust the Lord, to walk with Jesus. I pray that they will have an opportunity to have a marriage relationship that will last forever. Uh, it's incredible. I, I wish I could tell you, well, that because of my prayers, I've seen all of these men come back to God I can't do that, not honestly. Uh, for the most part, they stay stubborn. They stay committed to the life they've chosen, and it's, it's hurtful, but I'm not going to stop praying for them. I know God's grace is amazing. I'm hoping that they're going to hear the Holy Spirit at some point. Repentance is renewing. It can change the hardest of hearts. 
And even for those of us who maybe haven't gone to those extremes, we need to be in a continual state of repentance. Um, but I'll say this, repentance is often misunderstood by us. For those of us who speak English, to repent is often confused with the idea of being sorry. Yes, we, as we see in this passage this morning, Paul shows there is a difference between sorrow and repentance. Sorrow should lead us to repentance. They're not the same thing. Uh, in the New Testament, repentance is the word in the Greek, metanoia. Uh, it's a complex word. It's two words put together. Meta, to change, uh, to affect change. Noos, meaning the mind. So literally, change your mind. Um, Liddell Scott says, though in English, a focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin, the emphasis in metanoia seems to be more specifically the total change both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should both think and act. In other words, it's not enough just to say, I'm sorry. That's not what the New Testament concept of repentance is about. So when we ask someone to apologize, or we ourselves want to apologize, our common verbiage is to say, I'm sorry. Now, husbands, I don't know if you've been in the same river stream and a rotty canoe like I have been when I've had to say to my wife, I'm sorry. And then she asked that very uh, difficult question, what exactly are you sorry for? Uh, well, uh, we, we're, we're left grasping for possibilities. Uh, sorry for what I said. Uh, sorry for how I said it. Uh, sorry how it impacted you. Uh, sorry that our kids overheard it. Uh, sorry that I've said it a hundred times, but have never changed. The list goes on and on. I believe what we're really grasping for, what our wife would like to hear from us, is the concept of metanoia. I've changed my mind. My mind is now in agreement with yours, and I can see why this was the wrong thing to do, and I'm purposing to walk in such a way that you will not have to have this conversation again. When we come to God in prayer and we repent, it's not just a matter of telling God we're sorry. Uh, one time I was in our backyard, I, I had kind of a thing as a kid of lighting matches, and my mom she worked full-time, and so there was a lot of time where there was nobody kind of watching over us. So we had opportunities to do a lot of things that we like to do. And I was in the backyard of a neighbor's with a babysitter watching us a half block away. And uh, I was lighting matches with my brother, and we were just lighting them and dropping them down a pipe. Someone had intended to make a chain-link fence probably 20 years before, and now it was a rusty old pipe. Nothing was being done with it. And this would be a great place to hide burnt matches. So I was just, and we just thought this was great. Um, all of a sudden, the babysitter was right behind us. She was on us. And there was nothing we could do. We were nailed, you know. And so uh, the threat came through, well, wait till your mother gets home. Now, this wouldn't have been so bad, except we had done exactly the same thing in California uh, earlier that summer at a friend's house where the husband in that home was a Navy guy and he'd been all around the world and he had in a nice little uh, cabinet a whole bunch of matches that were from every place he'd ever been. It was his collection. And my brother and I thought, similarly, again, this would be a great thing to do to see how this collection burns. 
So we took it out in the backyard and we were lighting matches and sticking them through a knot hole in the fence when the neighbor on the other side of the fence came out, and I'm sure they saw a pile of discarded burnt matches, and they were like, what in the world? And we could see them walking around the front of the house, and we knew what was coming, and it wasn't good. I'm just going to say it involved a yardstick, and I'll leave it there. <laughs> but this time, back in our home, when uh, my mom got home, she was in a different mood. She just looked at us, and she came into our bedroom, and she said, what were you guys thinking? And we're like, we're sorry. And she goes, are you really? And in my mind, I remember thinking, you mean that's all I have to say? Yeah, I'm sorry. No yardstick, no grounding, no removal of privileges. And for some reason, she said, well, you better be. And she turned and left. And for some reason, in my childlike mind, I thought, that's great. If the whole world operates on this system, all I have to do is say, I'm sorry, then I can get by with virtually anything. Not a bad deal. But that's not how the world works, and that's certainly not how God works. When we say we're sorry to the Lord for a sin, when we try to repent, we have, that's the beginning of it, that sorrow, as Paul's demonstrating in his letter, that grief because we've been reprimanded, because someone has taken the time and love to point out to us some way in which our life is not conforming to the Lord. But the next step is true repentance. True repentance. I'm not going to do this again. But the truth is that most of us, even when we're sincere, return to the scene of the crime over and over and over again. Our sincere, heartfelt decision to repent may turn out to be just a temporary feeling of contrition. We truly believed and wanted our expression of repentance to be forever, but compulsively, obstinately, and perhaps even reluctantly, we find ourselves returning to a sin pattern that defeats us over and over again. There's some point where sometimes we even get to the place of saying, God, why do I even bother? I've repented about this so many times, and I'm just such a failure. I'm just going to just keep living the way I've always lived. I've, heard, I've had guys say that to me many times. But that's not what God wants from us. He understands us. Some people seem to have that iron will. Uh, my mother, when she became a believer at age 50, when the pastor came to her home, he said to her that God doesn't expect his people to smoke and drink because my mom asked him if that was okay. And so from that point on, as far as I know, she did neither ever again. Wow. I wish that kind of iron will was hereditary. It, it hasn't proven to be so. But for most of us, we struggle. We struggle with particular sins over and over and over again, but that should never stop us from truly repenting. I had an elder in one of my churches uh, back in Nebraska who, everybody turned to look at Miznik back there. No, don't do that. <laughs> back in Nebraska, and uh, he had a smoking habit, and he felt so bad about it. Just a wonderful man. I can't tell you how this man ministered to me in my life. I saw him go out of his way so many times to be used by God to make an impact on other people, but he could not break his smoking habit. And because of that, he quit being an elder. He quit having a major role in the church. He just felt so guilt-ridden, so full of shame 
that he just took a step back. How do we deal with that? How do we repent? Some men deal with pornography. Some of us deal with drinking. Some of us deal with just sharp words, with gossip. Whatever your sin may be, it's not a time to give up. Always we go back to the mercy and grace. I love uh, in Jeremiah, or actually Lamentations, where it says the Lord's mercies are renewed to us each and every morning. He knows who we are. When I look at repentance in the whole of Scripture, seeking an example to follow, I always land on King David. Yeah? Here's a man who experienced the anointing of the Holy Spirit as a young man to go out and defeat Goliath the giant, to avoid the murderous intentions of King Saul to unite a nation together against their enemies. Yet David sinned over and over. Grievous sins. Uh, in Romans 4, though, we read about David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. These aren't little sins for David. These are huge sins. Wow. Wow. David's repentance was sincere, it was responsive to God's uh, conviction, and it was powerful. I want to repent like David. That doesn't mean he was free from experiencing the discipline of God, because he wasn't. If you remember that when he sinned with Bathsheba, what happened to their baby? It got sick and eventually died. But David was there, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, uh, fasting, just pleading for God's mercy. Uh, Later on, God disciplined him by uh, having his sons rebel against him. And David was literally chased away from the capital of his kingdom. It was an embarrassing time of his life. One time, David did a census, and he was given the choice of having an angel of the Lord stretch out his arm, and people would die because of David's sin, or an enemy would come to the gate and it would have some victories over the nation of Israel. And David chose the angel. I mean, we see God's discipline in David's life all the time. So he wasn't a sinless man, but he was a repentant man. If we're looking for a great example to follow, he's the man. This leads me to my last point. There are two kinds of repentance listed in Scripture. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But we see in one case where repentance leads to salvation, such as when Jonah is called to go to the Assyrians to preach to the Ninevites and proclaim God's mercy, introduce Jehovah God to them. Uh, of course, he didn't want to go. It took a lot of moving for him to move in that direction. But when he got there, the Ninevites listened to his message and they repented. The whole city did. That's repentance to salvation. And I hope that if you're listening to me this morning, maybe at home or here, and you haven't done business with God, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you will move into that point of repentance, of giving your life to Christ. Repent of your sin. But there's a second kind of repentance, the repentance for those who have already been forgiven, and yet we find ourselves sinning again. This is the Christian, the believer in Christ, who still lies, steals, fornicates, all of them. Sure, we would like to live the perfect Christian life, but we don't. Yet, theologically, we believe that our sins are forgiven, and so then why do we say we should repent again? I look at the example of John the Baptist, the man called to prepare the way for Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, 
John preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the Jews were people who went to uh, Jerusalem to sacrifice for their sins on a regular basis. Uh, They went to the synagogue to hear the preaching of the word. They lived by the Mosaic law. If ever there was a righteous people, uh, by faith, it was the Israelites. But the fact is, they still had to repent. John called them to repentance. The truth is that when we come to Christ, we bring a lot of our former life before Christ into our new life with Jesus. None of us have yet attained to that point of pure holiness that we'll experience one day when we stand before God. Sometimes we act, speak, and believe more like our old selves than like our new selves. How many times has God convicted me of my sin as a believer? Each time that I feel God convicting me, I have to repent of that sin. My prayer is now different than when I first received Christ. I pray in agreement with God. God, I know, Father, that you've already forgiven me. You knew my sins past, present, and future when I came to you originally, back for me in 1974. But in order to clear the ground between us, I have to ask your forgiveness. I am sorry for that. Hebrews 12 tells us that the Lord disciplines us as believers, like a father disciplines his son. We ask God to forgive us. It doesn't necessarily mean that God won't discipline us. Discipline is something that God uses to move us to repentance, but it also goes through repentance. Uh, Another example besides King David I think of is Moses. Here's this godly man who's led the children of Israel through the wilderness. Um, He's been with them day and night. But if you remember the incident at the rock at Meribah, where Moses was ordered by God to speak to the rock and say, in the power of God, water will come forth and it will take care of the thirst of the people of Israel. But Moses was so angry on that day that he struck the rock with his staff twice and ordered water to come out. And God was angry with him. And so what was Moses' discipline? He wasn't going to be able to go into the promised land with his people. And I've often thought about that. I think about that a lot. And I think, well, certainly in, I don't know the time period that it took from that event to when the children of Israel actually crossed the Jordan. But how many times did, God, did Moses come to God and say, Lord, forgive me for doing that. That was wrong. I agree with you. That was wrong. And yet God did not remove that discipline from his life. He never got to go to that promised land. Yet in the New Testament, we see that Moses is revered. He's he's honored. Uh, He's the one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation that's going to come at the end of time. So it's not like it permanently removed him from being used by God. It was just a discipline. Some of us bear the scars of God's discipline in our lives. Even though we've repented, even though we're coming to God, we have those things in our life that are true because God has found it necessary to discipline us. I love the story of the little lamb that Jesus told that gets away from the shepherd. And what does the shepherd have to do? He doesn't let him run off and get into the way of wolves or fall off a cliff. The shepherd pursues the one, that lamb. And when he gets him, he takes him. And the habit is for a shepherd is to break their leg so that lamb can't run anymore. And he carries that lamb with him, right? So God will discipline us. Let's not shun discipline. Let's not regret discipline. Let's embrace it. 
because it's moving us, as Paul is saying, into repentance and into a right relationship with the Lord that hopefully will lead us to those right actions and attitudes. Think of it this way. There's a slide rule. And on one side, there's the way of the world. And on the other side, there's the life of Jesus. We're somewhere here, right? And every day we try to push ourselves to be more like Christ. I want to live more like Jesus. And we take great steps forward. We hear a great sermon. Or we go to a retreat. Or something happens where we're just like, wow, I really feel the presence of God and I'm going to be more like Christ. And then a day passes, a week passes, a month passes, two years pass, and all of a sudden we're sliding down back to the where we were. We take one step forward, we go two steps back. It's a constant battle. It's true of all of us. Repentance says, God, you're totally in my life. I don't care what I've done yesterday. I repent of it today, and I'm moving forward. And here's the thing. I think it's only in our hearts that we're moving backwards. If you're repenting every day, if you're making that effort every day to be renewed in Christ, you're not going backwards. You're going forwards. Even though you screwed up yesterday, that I screwed up yesterday, it's going forward. We're getting to be more like Christ. That's important. Anytime I look in church history and I look at revivals that happened, and that's my prayer, is that a revival would happen in this nation. Revival always begins with God's people repenting. They have to repent, and the person behind the pulpit has to repent, right? We have to repent so that we have a message and a lifestyle to shine the gospel to the world that is looking for answers. An unrepentant people is never used by the Father. I'm going to say that again. An unrepentant people is never used by the Father to effect great things for God. It's when we're humble and sincere and we're daily dutiful in coming to the Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit, asking as I read the word, God, convict me of whatever sin is in my life because I earnestly want to repent and I want to be used by you. That is our prayer.